Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. I'm in town, so we're doing a quick little podcast, catching you guys up on some shit. Um, Uruguay's president is absolutely insanely awesome. Not only is he... So not only did he legalize weed in the country, but he also legalized same-sex marriage. Then I heard that he was taking in Syrian refugees to his presidential palace. Like dozens of just children who are refugees just opening his palace to them. He's living on his wife's farm and he's giving 90% of his earnings to charity. He's also an atheist. And there's one other amazing thing. Oh yeah, he just took the Guant- like a couple of Guantanamo detainees into this country too. Isn't that insane? Yeah. He's like Cincinnati. Imp- <laughs> his the- name is Jose Pepe Mujica and he's just a complete badass former guerrilla fighter, was in prison for over 10 years in his country before be rising to power. Just really amazing guy that every leader should really uh, look up to. He's the one who should have a Nobel Peace Prize. Not a, not Drone King. Um, so that's really amazing. On a side note, net neutrality is at stake. We have like three months to save the internet. <laughs> what do you mean three months? I thought it was already Well, they, okay, so this inner, this document leaked from the FCC that basically said that they were going to rewrite the rules to favor telecoms and the two-tiered network, how it's going to be like pay to play, just like cable TV. You know, the more you pay, the faster you get and the more access you get. But so now there's been this huge public outcry that this document was leaked. So now they're, they've allowed this open comment section. And I've, I have an article on mediaroots.org that people can go and take direct action right now, because I think if we just flood the FCC, I mean, there's absolutely no way that they can... Well, you know, (laughs) well, we know who runs the FCC, which is a former telecom lobbyist. But I'm just saying that there was like a camp out. There was this Occupy the FCC camp out right in front of the headquarters. And they're giving us a chance to really tell them how fucked up this is. So I think that people at the very least, we can just at least leave a comment saying how insane it is. It's all public. So you can look and it's like overwhelmingly negative. So, I mean, we have a chance to hopefully instate net neutrality in the law because it's just really important. And our government's run by lobbyists. So we just need to step up and do that. I don't know if it's just you guys or if it's just me, but um, my internet seems slower since, <laughs> since this shit went down. The merger between um, Comcast and was it Time Warner? And that was what pr- prompted Al Franken to start making all these media appearances, trying to like raise awareness about it. And he, he rarely ever does like public interviews outside of his Senate job but it was just sad because I saw him on this like relatively obscure CNN show called Reliable Sources and then I saw him on Democracy Now talking about how net neutrality is basically gone now and that these companies are gonna just start pushing out more of the competition to make it harder for them to be able to infringe on their profits And he used like an example. It's not the greatest example, but the example he used was on Time Warner owns, I guess, uh, CNBC, he was saying. CNBC is a financial network and Bloomberg is also like a financial TV network and and Bloomberg is not owned by as big of a corporation. It's the analogy he was giving is that Comcast now merging with Time Warner will be able to move the Bloomberg channel in a different location on the channel lineup so that people won't see it with the other channels that are financial channels. 
because they don't want Bloomberg Network to be infringing on their other their channel that they now own, essentially, which is CNBC. Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, that example just shows how it's not just net neutrality is dead with that merger. It's just more conglomeration of media networks causing essentially less competition and more conflicts of interest. AT&T is trying to purchase DirecTV. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that would essentially make only two cable competitors in the entire country. Now, I mean, we not that that would be any much worse than what we have now. I mean, right now we only have like four, but... I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's more horrible. <laughs> yeah, and it already is. And horrible. once it's two, then it's just going to be one. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. what's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, it's just really crazy. Everyone, seriously, like, think about so many different things. I mean, just the way that you're able to listen to music could be like slowed down. This is why I think that what Kevin Pierre said about the porn industry. Can you imagine if all online porn websites just throttled their Porn, you know, videos for like one day in unison to raise awareness about net neutrality, oh, like yeah. it would just get like passed overnight. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's what we're talking about: is that yeah. these they can give preferential treatment to some video streaming services, like if they bought or like if you know if they didn't pass net neutrality, then like SoundCloud somehow got throttled, unless SoundCloud played paid them more, and then in turn forced us to now pay subscriptions to SoundCloud. I mean, this is all the things that are going to happen. Netflix already had to up some enormous fund um once this was acquired and then now our price for netflix just raised a dollar but i mean that's just and this is the other danger of like internet companies merging with me you know media companies or, or cable companies or whatever is that recently google started the bigger that google gets the more stuff like this is going to happen that they started giving out notices or warnings to people who had uploaded apparently people who have uploaded their own music onto youtube are now being are now being asked to enter into some new subscription service where you have to pay to like sell or stream your music online they're they're actually starting to slowly go into different ways people are using youtube and these i'm not talking about like lawsuits or copyright infringement i'm talking about uploading your own content which completely defeats the purpose of what we'd understand what we've always understood YouTube to be, which is like completely free access to upload whatever you want, as long as it's not like porn Mm -hmm. or like violence or anything like that. But it'd be like a way to freely express yourself. So now a musician can't just upload a song of theirs apparently without having to basically enter into this iTunes like competitor service or like a Spotify esque thing that YouTube is going to launch eventually, supposedly. Um, and that's just, yeah, that, I mean, just one small example of how not just net neutrality, but the more the conglomerations occur and the more less of these corporations actually own these different pieces of the pie, then it's just going to be an exponentially worse situation. And when you already at this current point, 90% of everything Americans see here and read is just with these five giant telecom corporations, basically. I mean, how disturbing is that? And so the internet's really the last bastion of free speech. And it's the the reason that we're, we've had this information renaissance and revolution and where we have such a fighting chance in the information war. And yeah. that's, of course, that's what they're trying to close down. And the government is literally run by telecom lobbyists in this, in the commission that's supposed to be overseeing the internet. And so we just need to tell on this public comment section that the internet should be a public utility and a common carrier motherfucking Tom Wheeler better step up and shape up. Maybe people out there are wondering why is there not more outcry about this since this is like oh, truly right. the death of net neutrality. 
Well, the reason is, is because the Senate and the House are completely bought off by these companies. If you need any proof of that, go but rewind back to 2008 when they all voted to immunize the telecom companies for illegally spying on us. Retroactive legal immunity. That's unprecedented. When they passed the Price-Anderson Act for the oil companies, they didn't also put something in there saying that any oil spills that were done in the past, we're going to go and immunize your guys' guilt from those and not make you pay. That wasn't part of, I mean, that to make, to retroactively immunize corporations for committing crimes is ridiculous. Yeah. That, I mean, and that was five, six years ago now. So. And another th- reason why we're not hearing any outcries is because the fucking corporate media is bought off by the same corporations. We're not going to hear about it from the mainstream. Yeah. 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 Finally, people are picking up because they're almost forced to right now because it's such a huge deal. But that's why you're not hearing in the nightly news. Um, another really bizarre thing that just happened is the authorization of use of military force was the piece of legislation passed in 2001. It was the legal justification for essentially every action taken in the so-called war on terror, like drone strikes, yeah. indefinite detention, also just apparently the invasion and occupation of different countries voted um, into law. What? Three days after nine 11, nine Yeah. And, and the only person who didn't vote for it was Barbara Lee from Berkeley yeah. represented from Berkeley. And keep in mind, Kucinich and Ron Paul both voted for this. They didn't vote against the authorization to use military force because I think a lot of people were in such of an emotionally shocked state still from nine 11. I mean, this is 72 hours after nine 11, they just wanted to get revenge on someone and Afghanistan was like this easy target. Bin Laden was supposedly there, but I don't think a lot of them actually comprehended that it was this open-ended way to wage war. But in what Barbara Lee said, and she had the foresight to know this back then in her speech for her vote, why she was voting no, she says, and we all know that the president can wage war even without this authorization. He can wage war if he wants yeah, to or no, not. And that's, and and that's, that's yeah. essentially what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, no, basically yeah. they just had this hearing. And for all this time, this outcry to repeal the AUMF as well we should. Basically the codification of something that the president essentially thinks he has power to do anyway. People haven't really realized how it really is meaningless <laughs> in the sense of that the executive thinks that they can do this shit regardless. Well, And so the Senate Foreign Relations Committee had a hearing last week where they were talking about the future of the AUMF. And Obama even came out last year saying, that, oh, yeah, we need to repeal the AUMF. Oh. And um, all these Obama peop- came out saying yeah, that? Dude, he's on. Yeah. Like at the State of the Union last year, he's like, I think, you know, 13 years it's time that. to repeal wow. the AUMF. Yeah. that's I didn't know that. Yeah, another thing that people praise him for meaninglessly. Um, he's only got three years left, dude, or less than that. I mean, he's got like two and a half. Unbelievable. Better fucking speed it up. <laughs> yeah, get that, get that AMF actually, repeal, yeah, dude. Two and a half years to close Gitmo, to yeah. repeal. I mean, he's got a lot he of work a lot to, do. to do. I mean, to we know he's going to do it, too, because he right. promised to. So. Right. Uh, so I'm not actually sure who was asked this, but it was someone very high up that was like the you know an intelligence officer who's like associated with the military who's answering questions about the amf and every representative that would ask her if the president was able to do what he's doing without the amf she did not know the answer to and she just said i don't know it was like john ashcroft in the anthrax mm-hmm. thing he's like i don't know i don't, I don't know. know even one question she was just like that's tif- i don't mm. she just was you know just totally silent on it anyway i'll, I'll link to this on the timeline of someone at RT breaking this down much better than I am right now. 
um, of just how insane this is. It's Sam Sachs. Oh, Sam Sachs, yeah. Um, it's just ridiculous to hear this. And you're like, well, why did we pass this anyway? Was it just like a smoke screen? The fact that the president could do this regardless of whether this law exists is just very disturbing. Try to rem- remember what it felt like during that time. And I mean... <laughs> It seems almost lot like reasonable. Like if you read the legislation, it's very simple, very short legislation. And it just seems like a really benign thing. Like, of course we need to go and respond mm-hmm. to the terrorists. But little did we know that it was just going to be used as cover to do everything we're doing. I mean, I just think that there's, you have to give them just a tiny bit of the benefit of the doubt for just being completely blinded by emotion. Yeah. That's, I mean, and that's the only of excuse. Of course. Yeah. And another thing is it's, I mean, the reason why it's so upsetting, I guess, is because in the con, I mean, it says that Congress in the constitution that Congress needs to like approve. Obviously that's why we have branches of government. So the president doesn't just like start doing shit without like being voted on, et cetera. So just a lot of, uh, a lot of crazy stuff happened after 9-11 that changed a lot of things. Um, and that's one the, pl- of, yeah. well, I just want to say really quick, that's the trick that they, that the Bush administration played the whole time is they would, they would get these really open-ended vague, um, legislation passed like the Patriot Act. And then during, while they were conducting all this illegal NSA surveillance, they would actually try to figure out ways to solidify into law, the specifics of it, because they knew that it was illegal the way that it was currently framed. And even though they were playing this game where it was like Alberto Gonzalez mm-hmm. would sign off on instead of the attorney general and all that shit. The fact that they would keep trying to push it, solidify it more into these other branches of government proves that they knew that it wasn't going to like last as a legal shield. I mean, that's in and of itself to me is like proof. They and knew they were breaking really the law. Important point, Cause I want to talk about that when we talk about us state of secrets and Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. Because that I, t- up until recently, I thought that the Patriot act was kind of the beginning of this NSA grid that was built but now i realize that it was built like immediately after 9-11 and that the patriot act was just like something else entirely and that they tried to use facets of the patriot act to justify and codify what they were already doing like on a massive scale so they already had the infrastructure set up mm-hmm. i mean do you want to should we talk about the movie a little bit now yeah, just to first, start the nsa bef- thing yeah yeah let's discussion? talk about the movie now so my brother i mean the united states of secrets pbs i'm not usually too much of a fan of PBS, but this is fucking mind-blowingly good. And everyone everyone needs to watch this. It's called United States of Secrets. I'm going to, unfortunately, there's no way to embed it, I'm realizing. So I'll just... There is. Well, it's on YouTube now. Oh, okay. Somebody bootlegged it up yeah. there that's in way lower quality, but it's really perfectly watchable. Okay, great. So I'll put this on Media Roots then, and if not, just look it up on the internet. It's just incredible timeline of everything that's happened in the surveillance state. Um, you've watched it twice. I've watched it once. Do you want to begin by talking about it? Yeah. I mean, what I was going to say before is when you were saying that immediately after nine 11, even without the Patriot Act authorization, they had already, the president had essentially called Michael Hayden and told him, yeah, this is a guy who David Addington Cheney's legal, like Cheney's chief of staff. Yeah, David Addington, very unknown player in the Bush administration, but apparently very um, large player behind the scenes actually like was one of the movers and shakers to to intimidate a lot of these people into going along with what was essentially illegal. And he asked Michael Hayden, what can you be doing that you're not doing right now? And Michael Hayden said, 
well, I'm not authorized to do this and that. And David Anderton's like, no, I didn't ask you what you weren't authorized to do. It was essentially giving the NSA head the open door to break the law. Mm-hmm. Kind of this like wink and a nod, carte blanche to do what you think is necessary to quote, protect us from terrorists. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's kind of how it started. And it started immediately after 9-11. It was based on the infrastructure of something that existed before 9-11 that William Binney, an NSA whistleblower, helped devise called ThinThread, which was a database and spying apparatus that was able to sniff traffic. And it was initially directed outward to foreign countries. What he was going to do was make it so that it could be targeted inward to like specifically targeted people. I mean, I think that he was ethically wrong from the beginning in his design of ThinThread because even though he didn't consider it a a privacy violation, what ThinThread did is it still monitored traffic, but it encrypted the communications between people that weren't being targeted. It would have automatically encrypted everything or in the neighborhood except for like the neighbor that they were targeting or something. Um, Which I think is still a violation of privacy. I I don't think that that's... I mean, it's definitely like a better system than what exists now, but that was the original design that this guy. And that's originally what Bush kept saying is that they were doing like that's Of course, that's what we all thought was happening at the very beginning. Well, he used like careful enough language to make it seem like that. Yeah. Then he started saying, well, we're only listening to people calling overseas. He's not literally listening to like everybody's phone calls, but they're collecting it all. They're sniffing it all in the documents. What's great about this documentary is that the history of the NSA program after 9-11 and how it was used to target everybody's communications in the United States comes from a leaked document by Edward Snowden. The actual history of it that... We only had bits and pieces of before, but from the NSA's own words and own department, they write out the history of the program and go through step by step how they try to fight for legal authorization Mm -hmm. in all these different ways and they weren't able to get it. So they went around and actually had Michael Hayden have lunch with the FISA court judge to like try to convince her to write a legal authorization. And she accepted it. Yeah. And and that's how it all started. It's the same exact thing, style of... In the imperial presidency that they did with the torture memos. They mm-hmm. hired lawyers mm-hmm. to couch things in legal language and word it in such a way where they where they could torture people and supposedly have a legal shield for doing it. That was, but on the, uh, the difference between torture and the NSA wiretapping is that they weren't able to win out in the end with the torture legal authorizations. The Obama administration did pull that back to a significant degree. I mean, from what we know, he still allows rendition, which is essentially exporting torture and deplorable conditions and gulags for prisoners that we capture or whatever. But with the NSA program, they were able to enshrine it into law by not telling the American public or the people who were voting on it exactly what it was. I mean, that was, and that's kind of how they did it. I don't think they could have done that with torture because you can't, I mean, waterboarding is torture. End of debate. With the NSA wiretapping, you could debate it for hours and and sort of make it seem reasonable if you describe it in a way that's with leaving certain things out. And what's so sad is that Thomas Drake was such a, in the true sense of the word, a patriot. He thought that he was doing the right thing. And then he really, truly saw how fucked up what they were using his infrastructure to do. He got shut out really early on when he was realizing that they were taking his framework and 
exploiting it far more than he would ever want to. He got shut out from the top, from his higher up. And then he just kept trying all these circles within the system. For years and years, he was just like exhausting every avenue that he could to try to go by the book to expose this and also to mm -hmm. make it better and to change it. Yeah. And it was the information was that he, that he found out was actually leaked to him from someone who yeah. was in this inner circle DNSA. Yeah. So Thomas Drake never was actually even working on yeah. what he tried to expose. Right. So sorry, I, no, no, I cut no, you no. off. Um, and so that was really amazing because I didn't realize, even though I've like interviewed Thomas Drake multiple times and I've studied his story, I just didn't realize how it all fell into place like that. And that's why this documentary is so important. It just gives you a really, really amazing foundational knowledge of where we are today and how we got here. Exactly. Yeah. It's extremely nuanced. Like you, yeah. you understand the nuances. If you look at this all sort of with this cloudy memory of like mixed in with all the other news that you've been following and, and you remember, Oh, well, Thomas Drake exposed the NSA mm -hmm, program mm -hmm. before Edward Snowden, like, Oh, whatever. But it's so much more specific and, yeah. and, important to, to know like what they expose exactly and, and why, you know, how they ended up getting targeted or, or he ended up getting charged for the espionage act. And, and the story of just that, like how they ended up actually drawing up charges for him in the end was they actually framed him essentially by classifying, reclassifying documents that he specifically took home knowing that he was legally allowed to because they were declassified. Right. And the government didn't give a fuck. They were just like, oh, we'll just stamp it classified again because that's how fucked up we are. Yeah. And then he spent <laughs> two years spending his entire um, life savings on legal fees. And then they just dropped the charges at the very end. So then he just became like a broken man. And I'm not saying that he's broken. He's obviously an amazing person who's like heroically fighting every day. I'm just saying at that point, they really did break him like break financially. Anyone, yeah. And mentally, probably. Yeah, he ended up working in an Apple because store. Because he's he's, he said he was seen as an enemy of the state. Like, you know, we don't, we're not from D.C. We're not from the East Coast. Like, it's hard to imagine, like, being a government employee and, and taking pride in what you do and mm -hmm. thinking that you're standing up for the right thing. And, and you are like a, a, you know, patriotic American. I mean, there's all these feelings that I have a hard time relating to. But being in that position and then being accused of being a criminal and, like, treated like one, it just... It just would be so tragic on a personal level. Right. And like being a criminal like, of the worst kind yeah. where you are traitors yeah. to your own country. If you, that happens, you can no longer work for the U.S. government. No. Your entire career that and before this point or whatever would probably revolved around the government to some degree. And for two years, he thought screwed. he was going to jail for his entire life yeah. under espionage. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't just him initially. I mean, he did get the hammer down the hardest, but he was in this group with Bill Binney and this other woman and a couple other people, the thin, th the thin thread group initially, and they all got raided and they all got harassed by the FBI and they were all like really concerned about what was going on. So it just, it's just really crazy because I never knew about those other people. I mean, I knew about Bill Binney, but there's this woman and I forget her name. Do you remember her name? She's extremely passionate and it, you could just tell that she's just been really traumatized by what they did to her to try to silence all of them. Like that's how insane Michael Hayden is. I don't think people realize how sociopathic Michael Hayden is until you watch this because he's just like gleeful. Like he doesn't regret anything. And he keeps saying, oh yeah, no, I knew that it would finally get exposed. It's like, oh really? Did you? Because you fucking did everything in your power to make sure it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> he has this bullshit story where he's like taking a walk with his wife one night and he's like, honey, we're going to do some things here. And uh, someday it's going to be public. It's like. Yeah, right. You you thought it was going to be secret the whole time, you asshole. Of course you didn't think it was going to be public. That's the same thing Obama says when he's like welcoming this public debate. 
And then yeah. Glenn Greenwald's response multiple times has been that you did not ask for this debate. It was forced on you. Right. Totally forced. <laughs> There's two quotes that I wrote down from the documentary. Um, one of them is Barton Gelman, the guy who works for the Washington Post, who also got documents. And he's featured quite prominently in the documentary. It's really interesting because I didn't really know that much about him or that he had that many documents. I mean, he said that he had hundreds, right, Robbie? Because he was looking through them and found the Google cache. I think cookie, he rather. probably has thousands. Yeah. I would assume. I mean, I don't know if he got the entire lot. I'm just wondering lot. why we don't hear more about Barton Gelman as like a player in this whole thing. Well, I think that the reason why is, is A, it's because he's not as aggressive. He's not as adversarial towards the U.S. government. He's been far more cautious about the leaks. Um you know, the most recent example is the Washington Post redacted all the country's names from Stol what is it called? Stom Stom Solmalget. Solmalget. Uh the the thing where the NSA document that talks about recording all the audio from all the phone calls and like staving it for thirty days or the Washington Post redacted the names of every country uh that was being surveilled and the intercept, the the Glenn Greenwald media outlet redacted only one of them. And we're going to talk about a little later, like some of the controversy around that. Yeah, um, no, you just brought up a good point, which is something that we need to remind people about is that the New York Times sat on the initial story about spying when some other insider contacted them. I don't even know who that guy is. I forget his name. He's also in the documentary. Um, he leaked it to the New York Times and they sat on the story for like literally a year. And the editor of the New York Times was like, just totally believe the government. You know, the government sat him down. They intimidated the hell out of all the journalists. And so, yeah, James Risen and was the journalist Eric Lick, Lickbow um, were working on the story together, and they got the leak actually from a guy named Thomas Tam, who was yeah, that's his job. The guy. It was to sign off on FISA court warrants. Yeah, and he he blew the whistle because. He was, re as he was going through these warrant authorizations, he was seeing all this information and proof and like records of wiretaps that he didn't give clearance for and that weren't <laughs> warranted. That they're all done in a secret court. Yeah. Well, no, weren't, no, no, that, but he, his court was the secret court. Okay. They weren't even being done in the secret court. They so were they being were done being above it. Yeah. Right. They were just totally just being indiscriminately done illegally. Right. 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 That's the whole thing. Yeah. The FISA court super fucked up and they authorized like 99.5% of the warrants they're asked for. But the U.S. government, the presidency, the White House was so intent on surveilling whoever they wanted to without the even the rigmarole and like having to even bother with like walking down to the office. I don't know if it was just out of convenience or they just I mean, it just such power hungry behavior that they would supersede this court that's fucked oh, up to crazy, begin with. Yeah. I mean, that's just crazy. That proves that the fact that they were just so hungry to get massive amounts of data at the same time. It wasn't about targeted surveillance. It's about the unknown unknowns. We surveil everybody's communication. We'll pick up suspicious patterns of people that we would have never yeah. suspected that could be criminals. And that almost seems to be like the only driving rationale that they actually really believe. And that is a very flawed logic. Oh, absolutely. And so James Risen basically forced them, eventually forced the New York Times to cover it because he was disgusted with how they declined to publish the story that he was working on. And so he threatened to write a book 
exposing it in the book. And so they were just forced to because they would just look horrible. I mean, they do anyway. Yeah, that's what happened. And I completely forgot about that. They saved it. They sat on it during the election season. Yeah, that's what's so crazy. Yeah. The Bush administration used the excuse that they that they would have to be called up to a committee like another 9-11 commission and answer for how they were responsible for the for next the, attack. Oh my God. People from the New York Times would have to answer to Congress about why they published this that Such allowed the next terrorist attack. Such insane fear monger. It's always been the exact same line. Yeah. And you hear to this day, every time Michael Hayden does a public appearance, which he's doing quite frequently, and it's really disturbing me, but he just is like such a baby. He's like, let me tell you a story. It's like, if Muhammad Atta, if we had the metadata, Muhammad Atta, and he like tells a story about 9-11 for like five minutes and you're like, that's your rebuttal? You just told us some fucking fantasy about, yeah, which we know is actually false because people have come out and said that that wouldn't have like done what you're saying. And also we knew about Muhammad Atta, yeah. so I don't Even know what you're talking about. Even according to the official 9-11 story, <laughs> the, the 9-11 commission report, which is, you know, the quote unquote official story, they... That actually what they suggest in it goes against what Michael right. Hayden is saying. They they talk about the needle in the haystack phenomenon and their excuse, which goes sort of along the lines of like the incompetence theory, is that they had too much information. They could not figure it all. Put, so connect the dots because there was too much. Per, so perfect uh, thing to do in that case is create even more information. <laughs> like what? Yeah. doesn't make any sense. Why would you make the surveillance grid even bigger if you already couldn't have, you know, it was like a needle in the haystack back then. My thoughts are on that though. Like, I don't know with how sophisticated algorithms get over time. My thoughts are on that is that whoever are these programmers that have developed this NSA spying grid, they're smart enough to know by paying it forward, maybe right now, it's in the same way that we were talking about last night, that maybe right now the Google robot email sniffer is not super sophisticated, right. but they still know that if they keep cataloging all this this information maybe in three or four years from now somebody will have developed an algorithm that can like nail that shit yes now we know how to utilize all this information in the emails but good thing we've been storing it for the last four years like exactly so maybe the u.s government knows that by storing all this stuff all they have to do is provide the storage space it's not like they have to have more sophisticated software to analyze it yet they just have to keep storing exactly and in five years from now I mean, this is even something That's I think about. That's what Snowden's as, talking about, the retroactive yeah. prosecution And as stuff. an audio in, engineer, like I, I went to audio school 10 years ago. Over the last 10 years, I've seen some amazing audio software that is able to do things I would have never thought were possible 10 years ago. Okay, this is actually an example of something that really is is real that someone developed. So like you can take any video photography of anyone since the, the, day, the dawn of color photography, mm -hmm. or sorry, color film. And you can use software that was only recently invented in the last two or three years to actually see someone's pulse rate and the blood flowing oh, through their body whoa. by post-processing the video. By doing this sort of weird color tweaking or something to it, they can actually see people's blood like pumping through their arteries and their faces and stuff. And that's something that you don't see, you know, that, that content is not available on that film when you're watching it with your naked eye, but modern software has made it the, the ability to be able to see something in that video that we weren't able to see mm -hmm. originally. So another example of that, that could be possible. Someone could design software that could do this, but 
imagine all these audio recordings of crowds of, you know, Senate hearings um, for the 20 minutes while they're setting up and casually chatting where they don't think the microphones are picking it up. Who knows? Someone might, you know, might make an audio algorithm that can actually individually isolate every single voice in a crowd and make an audio file of like identify each different human being in a room and then spit out that information and actually like allow you to listen to every person's conversation. Oh my God. I mean, that, that would just take software, you know, like there's enough information and quality and audio recordings already CD quality audio that that information is probably already contained in there. We just don't know how to pull it out. That's the thing with, um, you know, they rely on people who do things called audio forensics uh, in the in the intelligence world to listen to like shitty quality recordings to be able to hear if the recording is muffled or something. But over time, they've developed noise reduction technology, which can actually like remove most background noise. So without needing an audio forensics expert, someone with like excellent hearing, you can now hear someone's voice over like a shitty spy mm-hmm. microphone where 10 years ago you wouldn't have been able to. So what's the next 10 years going to be like? I mean, and that's, that's the, I, I guess that's all ended there, but that's like the, my only counter argument to the needle in the haystack thing is that I think that as technology gets better, that that's, it's not going to matter. Like the bigger the haystack, the better it is for them. Mm-hmm. Like it depends. It just depends on how sophisticated the software is. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. Barton Gelman. <laughs> Barton Gelman said, we're living behind one-way mirrors where the national security state and corporate America know so much about us and we know so little about them. And then someone else during the documentary said about the corporations. And this is another thing that we all know like implicitly, but it's just, we never really talk about it as much as we do the government because the corporations are conducting surveillance for advertising, not for intelligence. But when you have a government and corporate America working in conjunction that concept should be very scary to us equally. I mean, it should be equally disturbing that corporations are data mining everything as well yeah, and violating our privacy as well. And I know that like, yes, we're choosing to use these services, but as net neutrality erodes and everything becomes consolidated, we're not going to have the options. And that's why we need to learn encryption. And I'm guilty of not being proactive about that too. But I just hope that these things become more user friendly because it's just getting to be a little bit of a scary place, not knowing what you can even do to stay private. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, it very much reminds me of the, the Adam Curtis uh, film series, the trap, because you know, the first part of that movie series is about game theory and how governments and corporations use statistics and like modeling and trying to be like predict things based on statistics and, and stuff like that to, be able to see the world better but then at a certain point it becomes not it, it's not the real world so mm-hmm. the fact that corporations are trying to study us so much understand our buying habits and understand what we like and what we love and what makes us sad and what makes us happy they can't get inside of our heads like they can only do so much like there's a saturation effect where it's like once they get all that information it's not like they truly understand who we are as people. And it's not even really like they can understand what we're going to buy in the future. It's just like an educated guess. Mm-hmm. It's strange. The whole thing is just, is just weird. You know, all the Google stuff was like open source and, and right. free. And and that to me is the most insidious. I mean, all these other corporations, yeah, fuck it. Like uh, Verizon, AT&T, like I don't, 
expect yeah. I don't have like special but it's like some, a company like Google I think deserves think extra scrutiny yeah. because they projected that ethos and they used and stole a lot of their ethos and like hijacked just like Obama hope and change you know anti-war civil liberties lawyer they fucking hijacked that whole like internet spirit of free open source yeah the whole like free software thing that's a whole nother <laughs> a whole nother subject to talk right. about corporations involvement right. in this but well let's move on to nsa and, and everything that's going on so we'll start with this twitter feud between greenwald and wikileaks the intercept is glenn greenwald's new media outlet he was originally working for the guardian doing these snowden leaks and then he mysteriously dropped off of the Guardian and talked about launching this new media venture. But now we sort of know the backstory about, I think, why he decided to leave the Guardian. And and that reason in the in his book is basically that they weren't aggressive enough with the way that they handled the situation. They sat on the original Prism story um, for too long. I think for him, he panicked and he basically threatened to leave and publish it independently um, immediately if they didn't comply. The British government told the Guardian, they threatened them saying that we're going to shut you down. They did, they were like vague about it. They basically just said, we're going to shut you down if you don't either hand us all over all the data that you have from Edward Snowden. And then the, the Guardian offered to destroy it in front of them. They That was like their compromise. So Glenn Greenwald being the like litigator, you know, civil liberties lawyer that he is or was wanted them to actually like call their bluff and say, no, shut us down. Because in his mind, that would have actually blown up in the government's face. And it would have been like a worldwide story that the British government shut down one of the biggest newspapers in the, in right, the UK in the world yeah. yeah, or in the world. So that, I think that the, those two things combined, I think, he knew that he was eventually going to have to do this on his own. Um, and that's what he did. I mean, and what with majorly huge funding. Right. And, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but. Yeah. So he's, so since he started the intercept, he's published a series of documents. He also published a series of documents in his book, along with releasing them as a PDF online where you can look at all of them yourself. Yeah. He released a shit ton of yeah. documents for free on the website, which, are all the documents in his book, plus a lot of documents that weren't previously released before that other newspapers had Specifically so he wouldn't be, quote, making money off the documents. Because yeah. he's already released them for people to see without needing to buy the book to see them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, during his short time at The Intercept, they've already published like a crazy amount of stories. I mean, one of them is that the government essentially kills people with drones based on metadata, which is absolutely insane thinking that you can give someone your cell phone if you are like quote unquote an alleged militant and based on just whoever has that cell phone could just be killed with the drone if you like leave it at your grandma's house and she like goes to church and then the government could just like send a drone strike and kill whoever has the cell phone of the metadata collection of whoever's texting or whatever on the phone it's just insane yeah and remember back when we were talking about the idea of like suspicious behavior patterns like mm -hmm. before this NSA leak happened like yes it's true that we had a vague idea that the NSA was was doing mass surveillance on people but we didn't know exactly how exactly what they were doing who they were doing it to who they were targeting most and back then when we understood the drone war and what we were told about it we sort of you and I speculated that you know they're doing like 
sky surveillance. Yeah. You know, they're like watching people, heat signatures on the ground of like watching people go to and from their houses and possibly carry weapons yeah. into a vehicle and drive away or whatever. And that's how they developed the suspicious behavior patterns. But I'm beginning to believe, and I mean, no, it's not, all computer that it's algorithms. metadata. Yeah, no, it is. To, to, that's how they predict the behavior better. Yeah. And that's even fucking scarier. Like, that is so irresponsible. Like, There's on so zero many levels. human interaction yeah. with like deciding these crazy things. It's a things, perfect example death. of like the trap philosophy. Like, you cannot deduce factual information that way. You can just get an educated guess. And that's just it's weird. Like, that they would actually target people. Or they would surveil people, you know, based on these like suspicious metadata patterns. And then they would use the metadata to actually kill them too. Because the whole time that would be their fingerprint. No wonder would be so like many their... innocent people are dying. <laughs> just like, yeah. my God. Oh, not to even mention like the bomb, you know, the bombs they use like exploding around, you know, in the surrounding area yeah. and killing people that aren't even targeted. So one of the most recent articles, um, actually it might be the most recent, I haven't been to the intercept in a couple of days, but is the fact that the NSA is doing this program called mystic and it's currently happening, recording and storing every single phone call in the Island Island nation of the Bahamas, which has a population of about 370,000 people. And in conjunction with exposing that, they also talked about how they're recording metadata fully and think about how giant Mexico is that they're also monitoring and collecting the metadata of all of Mexico, Kenya, and the Philippines. Oh, so they're not doing full audio recording in Mexico? No. That's not what it talks about in the document? No. They're just doing full audio recording of the Bahamas. And then as we later found out through WikiLeaks, apparently is Afghanistan. Okay. I didn't realize only two countries right. on that list were interesting. That's why it was such a big deal that people were like, you're not going to tell us the other country of the insane surveillance yeah. of like full audio surveillance. Well, that, should we go into that, that, that controversy a little more about yeah. the debate? Because here, here are just some of my initial thoughts. Nobody confirmed, did anybody like a third party confirm that it was Afghanistan yet? Or is WikiLeaks the only one who has come out with that? If he doesn't yeah. have the actual documents, then someone with the documents confirmed it to him. There's just no other way that that would happen. Or I think. maybe, maybe they were able to make a very accurate guess based on more information that mm -hmm. they had or something. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. There's no, there's, there's a little bit of a weird um, unknown situation with how many, some like Republican right-wing publication called the business insider was actually accusing Jacob Applebaum of handing over leaks to Julian Assange from the Snowden documents. And that's how he got the country name. They were like basically saying that that's what happened. They were just totally speculating. I mean, it could be complete bullshit, mm -hmm. but there is an interesting connection between Jake, just Jacob Applebaum and the documents. And he has been very critical of Glenn Greenwald for a lot of the same reasons WikiLeaks has for not releasing enough documents, not releasing them fast enough for redacting the country. Has name. he been? Yeah. Similar kind of, I would say every time WikiLeaks has jumped on Glenn Greenwald or Intercept, it, he kind of does too. But they're doing it in a reasonable enough way where they're able to sort of like come together and they're doing that like friendly criticism in a public way. It's friendly, it's but it's also pretty extreme too. I mean, that WikiLeaks, I mean, it ended with, and that's the most extreme thing that's happened so far is that WikiLeaks actually released that name. They threatened in 72 right. hours, we're going to release the name of the country. 
So and it happened at a weird time. It was like, I remember seeing it immediately. It was like 8 p.m. Yeah. where I was or something like really Glenn late. Greenwald, Actually way later than that. I was like midnight. Yeah, Glenn Greenall never never said anything about it. No one from The Intercept. I looked on all their Twitter feeds. Um, no one said anything. So. If it is true, and I just want to say two things about Afghanistan. If it is true, which I don't doubt that it is because I don't think that they would be irresponsible to say that. Um, recording Glenn full Greenwald, audio. Full audio. Yeah. Glenn Greenwald didn't, he said that he didn't release it. Mind you, he's also working with like a team of people because it would quote, be a matter of national security and people might die because of a small company in Afghanistan or wherever the country was unnamed that was operating. It would be like very obvious that this country, this company in the country was doing the surveillance and put people at harm working within this company. So who knows what that company is or what's going on there. But if it is indeed Afghanistan, that means that the NSA is doing full audio surveillance of a population of almost 30 million people. I mean, that is a pretty tremendous feat. And also, if that were true, then 90% of the world's heroin is coming out of a country that the NSA is doing full audio surveillance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's that the end question funny, here. Yeah. I mean, so if we didn't already know without documents, of course, to prove it, if we didn't already know or have an enormous suspicion that the NSA, I'm sorry, that the CIA was like running drugs out of Afghanistan. I mean, I just don't see how that would be possible for this route of, of opium to just be leaving the country with just like no one the wiser. I've had very numerous third party confirmations from people in the military saying that they were designated to protect opium crops actually. Yeah, yeah. Even someone I went to high school with like that is like conservative wrote me privately and they were like, I can personally confirm everything you just said in that video that you just made about like the opium stuff when I did on Breaking the Set. Yeah. And I was like, can you go public? And he was like, no. <laughs> but it's just amazing. And he was in the Marines. Well, yeah, there's a whole rabbit hole. You know, that's another one of those things that is a, a quote unquote conspiracy theory mm -hmm. to suggest that the U.S. government or parts of the U.S. military are involved in illegal drug running. There's no way in hell that they would be keeping their hands off of that money. There's just no way. Mm -hmm. The CIA, at the very least, we know... Is allowing drug lords to do it and then like taking it, like yeah. getting the money by proxy because it's, somehow. Because it's just another way to generate black right. budget money off the books. It's like creates another barrier because it's like, yeah, you can launch black budget projects from the United States using black budget money. But when you're in another fucking foreign country, the currency could be anything. It could be guns. It could be drugs. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you're involved in Especially when you're like working that. with the Taliban huh. and like meeting with them. Uh, I mean, <laughs> like negotiating with the yeah. terrorists that you said that you were there to exactly. kill. <laughs> even something as, as barbaric as like human trafficking. Yeah. I mean, we don't even know. I'm willing to believe that the U.S. government is even involved in that. At the very least turning a blind eye. In these situations, there is, it's, it's the fucking wild west to the max. Right. Like, so the Glenn Greenwald thing, I mean, as I was watching this documentary, the state of secrets, I, it's really apparent how this all operates when journalists are about to publish classified information. They, they call the government to get a comment and, and see what the government has to say. It's part of the story. It's like protocol. You and so it's just amazing to see over the course of the last 10 years, like how they just have begged everyone, like gone to such extremes to prevent people from publishing this shit. But the Guardian, you know, went with that initial story. And then now, I mean, apparently Greenwald, they convinced him about this one country. Like, I don't know what they said, but... Who, the Guardian did? No, no, no. I mean, the government convinced Greenwald and his group at The Intercept what? to not publish whatever that country was. 
I mean, it's possible. Maybe, I mean, and I'm not saying I agree with their decision because I don't know what decision process is made. And I, and I just want to state for the record, I think that all the documents should be released immediately, even the ones that could potentially endanger intelligence assets lives. I think it's not a realistic thing for them to consider in the positions that they're in. And, you know, maybe some people might call that like radical or anarchist, but I just don't think that there's much time left. The NSA grid is already here. Like we have so much proof it's here. It's only going to get worse. It's only going to be able to surveil more of what we do and stifle more dissent. So my philosophy is leak every single piece of it and not even worry about it. But at the same time, I'm not going to impose those same philosophies on Glenn Greenwald, even though I agree with a lot of his reporting in large part, like I agree with like most of the work that he's done. I'm not going to necessarily agree with his methodology for releasing the leaks the way that he's doing. But at the same time, and I think this needs to be mentioned is that he has made an agreement with Edward Snowden. And I think that ultimately that supersedes everything right there. Yeah. If you want to criticize him for, not breaching his agreement with Edward Snowden, then I guess you could criticize him for that. But at the same time, Edward Snowden has put his entire life on the line and he decided to give, give these documents. He chose Glenn Greenwald. He could have chosen anybody chose Glenn Greenwald, Laura Poitras. And, um, I guess, I don't know how much he like chose Barton Gelman or if that was just sort of a happenstance thing, but he, he didn't choose very many people to do this. And for you to say that he should that this oath should be violated and then he should just dump it all, um, or if he doesn't, he's some kind of plant, or he's working or he's like working too much with the U.S. government, I think is very unfair because ultimately Snowden is the one you should be voicing that criticism towards. If you think he is being too measured and cautious by using the journal, journalist as a filter to relay this information to the public. Because if he wanted to, he, he could, have could, given have, it to WikiLeaks. could have given it to WikiLeaks. He could have leaked it all himself. Another, yeah, you're bringing up a good point, which is the, the Snowden pact. And the thing is, Snowden's not in prison. He's not in solitary confinement. Um, he's out and doing interviews. Yeah, he's um, not barred in any way from making public appearances on the net, doing a Reddit AMA. The fame-seeking narcissist charge that was leveled at him is obviously not true because he could be totally... Yeah, like, he could be way more saturated than he already yeah. is. But he's isolated enough, but but still being able to speak out, and we know where he stands. He hasn't once made any sort of criticism on how the leaks are being done. In fact, he endorsed the USA Freedom Act, of course, from its inception, was much different than what it is today. It's become completely watered down and endorsed by NSA apologists like Mike Rogers. But initially, it was like a really good piece of legislation that would reform the NSA. And like he's not calling to abolish anything. He's not an anarchist. He's not radical. I mean, he was a patriot, you know, in the American sense of the word in terms of him wanting to like fight for his country after 9/11, bought into all the war on terror stuff, joined the military, broke both of his legs, and then came home and joined the intelligence community because he really believed in all of this and wanted to protect the country. I just think it's important to understand the mindset of how he shifted and how he's not as radical as I think people are expecting him to be. Yeah. And ultimately, even though we on the inside of this, and it is somewhat of a bubble, like the sort of like 
you know, the anti-war crowd, sort of like the left-leaning world of like fringe politics, we tend to see people in whistleblowers like Thomas Drake and William Binney and John Karaku and Edward Snowden. We, or, or yeah, or is that they're part of, they're part of our larger world that they're like somehow a part of it. Like that they must in some way believe in the same things we believe. Otherwise they wouldn't be associating themselves with this world. But that's like a really, I think I'm like a tunnel vision way of looking at them because ultimately these are all people who served in the U S government. You have to understand that in large part, they were very much committed to their job as serving the U S government. It's obvious that a lot of people get fed up with their jobs in the government and are willing to put their careers on the line to make the government behave better or whatever. But I think ultimately even that, Edward Stone has even said this, that I think it comes from a place of pride about their country. They want their country not to be so fucked up. They're seeing their country doing bad things and they want to save it from getting worse. And Edward Snowden, this is actually what he said um, when he did that German television interview. I think it's like the only full interview he did in person in in Russia. Uh, He said he, he doesn't want to hurt the government. He wants to help the government. He wants to create a debate and spark a public debate that he believes will eventually make the government more healthy, like to its people. You know, and I, but I mean, I don't think that he's not saying that as an inverse to that he doesn't want to help the people too. No, no, no. Of course, I mean, he, he wants the people to rise up and make true democracy where they exactly, can force yeah. a change and create that public debate. He gave up a lifestyle dating this beautiful model, getting 200 G's a year in Hawaii. And he was, you know, he just cared so much about his country that he just like a, f- a switch flipped in his mind where he was like, this is wrong. Like this is going too far and this needs to be scaled back because he believes in liberty and freedom and civil liberties and stuff. So it's just really incredible how someone can commit such a selfless act at a mere 29 years old and yeah. sacrifice himself. And they said, I don't want all of these to be released. He, yeah, he was giving the documents to Glenn Greenwald because he trusted Glenn Greenwald to follow an, a, a, like a gentlemanly agreement. I don't know if they sign any paperwork or anything like that. Like, I don't know if that ever actually occurred like a contract of how they would distribute these. But as far as I understand, it was this, it was basically an oath that he took to Snowden that he would follow his instructions and that the documents that Snowden had, because Snowden had categorized these documents in folders and I mean, tons of subfolders. I mean, he had organized it as best as he could for the journalists that he gave it to. There were um, documents marked in like folders that said like, do not, these are like not for distribution. Yeah. And who knows how many files were in those folders saying these are never to be released. Like we don't know the breakdown yeah, so that goes back to the idea that we've, and Glenn Greenwald himself has said, we've only released so far about 1% of the documents that we have. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that he's going to release the other 99%. Right. That's absolutely not what it means. Um, but we don't know what's in the rest of that, that archive. You know, even Jocelyn Raddick, who's Snowden's lawyer, um, none of them have come out and said, this is unacceptable. Snowden's a psyop. Like, I mean, of course they wouldn't go to that extreme, but like none of them have even been remotely criticized the way that they're being released. Well, let's talk about, yeah, the snow. Okay. Let's get, just like throw that one out in the bin for now. Cause the Snowden is a psyop one. 
it's not it's just not a credible because it comes it comes with the argument that quote nothing new has been released in the document so snowden must be some sort of intelligence psyop strain people away from like the bigger more nefarious shit going on you know that's the whole like limited hangout theory template but at the same time I don't do not see at all in the slightest what this is gaining the American government. Right. And I think two great counterexamples to that. And I, and I just, I don't want to spend too much more time addressing that theory that him, him, him is a, in an op. But even when you saw people like Naomi Wolf peddling it initially yeah. like that, I mean, it is something oh God, that I needs forgot to about be that. said. Yeah. Well, yeah, Tarpley, Naomi Wolf. And then the other flip side of that is like the Jamie Kirchick neocon one, right. which is that it's a Russian FSB <laughs> operation. From the very beginning and that somehow he's drawn Glenn Greenwald into this like Russian spy thing. But the, okay, the Snowden op thing is bullshit because James Clapper clearly perjured himself. And right. if he had any idea of this op was going to take place, he wouldn't have fucking perjured himself, period. Obama's first statement about it when he was in Silicon Valley answering questions at that press conference, he clearly had no idea what was about to come. At that point, the NSA truly did not know how many documents Snowden um, smuggled, and I think that's really evident in their behavior. I don't, I don't think that it, that's just proof alone. That yeah, this and watch the documentary because like, I didn't really realize we we kind of realized this last night. We were like, whoa, like Obama just had no clue. It just seemed like he kind of just yeah. got briefed when he got in office, and he was like, all right, let's keep going with it. Well, I mean, the thing is, if he knew all that history, that alone. I mean, he, being a constitutional he's a hundred, lawyer, yeah. 100% complicit. Yeah. If he knew that history and he read that whole thing, I mean, it's oh, it's donezo for him. Like he and has if, no And you know what? He sh- and you know what? If he didn't, he's a fucking idiot. And if he did, I would bet that he did because being a constitutional lawyer, if you remotely even care about the constitution, like wouldn't you want to take a look at how the spying grid? That was like the biggest craziest thing going on in terms of post 9/11 executive power. Don't you think that he would want to know the details at the very least being I don't know. I just don't there are no excuses for him at that point. No, there, no there's no excuses but for him. But let's talk about the nothing new in the documents thing. Well, yeah, let's let's just preface this so this part of the broadcast we're going to we're going to address some of the what we consider the more common, but also like the more valid criticisms than saying that Edward Snowden is some kind of like psyop. Like these, we're going to go over some like criticisms that we hear a lot about this whole situation. Yeah. About Greenwald, mostly about Glenn Greenwald, but also about the content of the leaks and like how they're not really worthy of discussion. Yeah, um, and and that's just blatantly false. As we've outlined in two cases, we just learned something really damaging and new: the fact that the U.S. is just collecting complete audio surveillance of the Bahamas. Yeah, that alone is something that I've never heard that doesn't exist. Yeah, how they piggybacked on Google's cookies to go into a backdoor in all these tech com- corporations and like just sweep all of the data. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that specific before. The physical product. Um, sabotaging they would actually intercept packages they have photographs of them doing it i mean this is like the government being caught red-handed doing something absolutely heinous they are intercepting routers that people have ordered on the internet um cisco routers you know what it is wait i want you to i i hold that thought really quick but it's all these people who are already in our mindset 
who have known since 9-11 that probably the government's just spying on everything and collecting everything. The, like we've said this for years and years and years. Yeah, it's the cynicism. But it's like those people who just think because we already knew that there's nothing new. And it's like, well, think about the globe. Well, yeah. And also it's not that we didn't know that for sure. We, we only had right. bits and pieces of it. Someone with a certain level of cynicism, and I'm not using the term cynicism like a negative meaning like that it's like paranoia or it's like you're like too distrusting of the government. I mean, like a healthy level of like genuine, understandable cynicism after 9-11 that a lot of people with that level of cynicism could infer that the government probably would be doing that if they had the capability. We had a few dots that we could connect. We had, um, you know, Thomas Drake. We had uh, a couple other whistleblowers. We had the guy that that witnessed the AT and T um, NSA room at AT and T. That kind of stuff we knew. Understanding how the government actually operates in this way, I think, is extremely, <laughs> extremely valuable. Yeah. Like recently, did you see how they leaked? Um, someone leaked a document about Occupy. Um, yeah spying or something yeah i think it was done by the partnership for civil justice fund in dc they're great and, and that's great that's great information for future activists it's the art of war and anyone who's been tuned into what's going on in dc they're just constantly having hearings intelligence briefings about how snowden's a spy and how they're just like obsessing about these leaks but the nothing new in the documents is also false there's tons of new shit in the documents. And plus we have documents now. Like, yes, of course we knew that the government was infiltrating the internet. Of course there's a new COINTELPRO going on that's like creating honeypots and distracting and all the stuff. But now we have an actual document that says exactly, exactly. how that works. Gambits for deception. <laughs> and it, it shows in detail how they are, they have all these like buzzwords and, and basically like psychological techniques to create rifts and influential personalities on the internet, like people on forums and message boards who sway opinion just in those small communities, how to discredit them, how to create rifts in those communities so that that person is, has like less influence. And that's, that is classic Cointelpro, but done online. And they used to spread rumors just within activist communities, like, oh, this person's a agent. And now they could just do that online about everyone. And now everyone thinks everyone's like a plant. Yeah. And back to the, the WikiLeaks feud with Glenn Greenwald, and I didn't ever really go into the Jacob Applebaum thing. I wanted to mention that really quick is that this guy, Cryptom, uh, the, the website Cryptom has gone through and combed through all the documents so far that have been leaked by Snowden, um, that, that they're available. And they found that uh, there is this sort of like not confirmed amount of documents that supposedly were given directly to Jacob Applebaum by Edward Snowden. This is what I, I've inferred from it, but I don't know if that's actually how he got the documents. But at a certain point, he did a story for Der Spiegel with Laura Poitras based on documents that were not in any other news stories mm -hmm. about the leaks. It was among those other sort of like third party, like not on the Guardian stories about some of the leaks that were directed by Laura Poitras and or Glenn Greenwald. But Jacob Applebaum happened to be involved in this one. And then he also did a talk following uh, this article. In one of the talks, he gave like an extremely amazing technical breakdown of more internet heady, geeky talk stuff about exactly how they're doing this, about how um, Apple and these companies probably gave the NSA some kind of backdoor and stuff like that. And it's like an hour long lecture. Everyone should check it out. Um, and then there was another thing he did, which I was really surprised to see. 
um, given sort of the more cautious, you know, methodology of Snowden and, and Gleanwald and Laura Poitras so far is that he was at a talk with Laura Poitras after he obtained some of these documents, apparently. And he was actually giving out a piece of paper to the audience, which had the addresses of suspected NSA intercept points, which are like secret NSA offices all around the country, including in San Francisco and L.A., um, in New York, in, in D.C. And you can't find that document now. I wasn't able to find the document, but it's very visible in the video. You can pause it and pretty much read all of the addresses and names if you pause it at the right places. But what I was most surprised by is that he had a guy in a, a V for Vendetta, like Guy Fox anonymous mask, wearing a suit with a stack of addresses and handing them out to the audience and essentially encouraging people to go out to these locations, like put pressure on them. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like giving almost like instructions for how to like radically fight the government, taking it all the way to the hilt, go to the government secret NSA spying locations and right. basically harass them and let them know that you're there and like you're watching them and all this shit. And that's like the most radical sort of display I've seen based around any of these Snowden leaks and, and sort of like from the official circle of people who've had access to them. So that's, I just wanted to mention that cause like, that's sort of a thread that I don't haven't been able to follow. So if anyone out there listening knows exactly what the backstory is on who, how Jacob Applebaum was given documents, how many documents he was given, has he actually released the raw documents online or was he under some sort of condition that, you know, that he wouldn't release them online? Because that's a criticism I've seen him level at the intercept and Grand Greenold also is that they're not leaking enough of the actual raw full documents. So I just wanted to bring that up because you you would if you're looking at this Twitter feud just recently and you just you, and this is the first time you've heard about sort of a feud between WikiLeaks and the Intercept. I think that you might get the impression that like Jacob Applebaum and WikiLeaks are these like absolutists who will leak anything and everything with no regard for like people's safety, and that's obviously not the case because Julian Assange um, and WikiLeaks went through a lot of those leaks combed through them, redacted people's names that could compromise people's lives. And so they were careful in their approach, even though they leaked a lot more raw documents than Glenn Greenold or the Intercept. They are going after Glenn Greenold most recently for him redacting the name of that fifth country, which was Afghanistan. So... I guess my my only qualm with that is that the way that they're the way that WikiLeaks is doing it is super aggressive. Um, they've come down very hard on the Intercept and even called them racist and stuff like that. But I guess what bothered me most was something that I've never been able to forget. And Abby and I kind of like Abby sometimes gives me a hard time for this when I bring it up because I was like I've been just fixated on it since WikiLeaks came onto the scene, but. After the collateral murder video, WikiLeaks announced during a lot of their media appearances following the collateral murder video that they were going to release another video, which was coined the Afghan Ma Afghanistan massacre video, which was um, in the U.S. Pentagon logs is called the Garani massacre. Like they actually acknowledged that it was a very large civilian casualty, uh, like collateral damage incident where I think the Afghan government claimed a hundred civilians were killed in this attack. And it was actually captured on video, which is 
I mean, pretty remarkable. I don't, I, I don't know of any other time when a video has been released showing that many civilians like being killed from a Apache helicopter or whatever. So this is a video that they had back then. And apparently it was encrypted with some military encryption. They decrypted it. Bradley Manning talks about watching the video in his chats with Adrian Lamo. You can go to the Wired magazine chats that they leaked. So Bradley Manning had somehow seen the video. WikiLeaks claimed it was encrypted, so they weren't able to watch it right away. They announced that they had decrypted it. And then all of a sudden, the story just sort of went away. And then apparently a defector from WikiLeaks, uh, this German guy, actually stole a bunch of documents from WikiLeaks and was going to release them on his own website, like a WikiLeaks competitor website. And then instead of releasing them, he destroyed them all. That's what WikiLeaks claims, is that he destroyed the But it's not Afghan weird that WikiLeaks video. wouldn't have a backup? Exactly. So I just wanted to interrupt the, the broadcast here to give the listeners out there a few updates. Because I know I, I specifically, not Abby, but myself, uh, has been pretty fixated on the release of the Garani massacre video from Afghanistan, one of the two videos that Bradley Manning leaked to WikiLeaks. Uh, only the collateral murder video was the one that actually made it to, um, to the public. Uh, the other one never came out. And I actually got a response from the official WikiLeaks Twitter account today um, when I asked them about it for some more clarification. They responded by sending me a link to the actual affidavit um, of Julian Assange. And I don't, I don't know exactly if this affidavit, what court it was filed in and, and what purpose exactly the affidavit served originally. Um, but on section eight of the affidavit, and I believe this is the part that the WikiLeaks account was specifically pointing me to, um, it says, quote, the WikiLeaks material taken on 27 September 2010 was of legal and historical significance and included shocking evidence of a serious war crime, the massacre of more than 60 women and children by U.S. military forces in Guarani, Afghanistan, evidence of a U.S. military operation conducted against myself and the activist Jeremy Zimmerman while on German soil. Oh, and then it goes on to say, and my privileged attorney-client communications, among other things, other copies of this material have been rendered inaccessible to me by separate incidents that do not form part of this complaint. Now, trying to, to cut through some of the, the confusion, because it's a little bit confusing, but I think what this is basically saying is that other copies of this material, meaning that there were other copies of it. It wasn't, it wasn't that this defector from WikiLeaks actually stole their only copy of it. Other copies of the material have been rendered inaccessible to me by separate inc incidents that do not form part of this complaint. So there's possibly another explanation for what that means, rendered inaccessible. I'm going to take a wild guess here. I mean, it's not that wild of a guess, but the only thing that can mean to me is that either the data was corrupted somehow, which seems unlikely unless it was deliberate by this defector, or it was encrypted after WikiLeaks received it from Bradley Manning. Um, and I say after because Bradley Manning actually described seeing the video in those chat logs with Adrian Lamo. So he watched it in an unencrypted form. But apparently the only existing copy they had after this guy stole the, um, stole the material was an encrypted version that apparently unless you have access to the keys, essentially rendered inaccessible, which is what their actual quote in this affidavit says. So 
I guess that's the answer to the story is that they made copies, but they can't access them in their current form. And that's sort of all the information we were given. My main complaint though, with this is still, um, that, you know, redacting a country name, I can understand them complaining about doing that. But at the same time, sitting on a video of this magnitude, the Garani massacre for the amount of time that they did, um, because apparently, you know, they had a, a window of time where they could have released this. And I think they were probably waited too long. I mean, that's a complaint that I will still level is that they, is that, you know, you shouldn't sit on a document because the, there's always a potential for something like this, this to happen is that someone could steal the information. Someone could corrupt it. Someone could encrypt it with new encryption codes and render it inaccessible to you. So to prevent that, that most leaks in, of this magnitude um, should be released immediately. And now we return to the original broadcast. It doesn't, if their ethos is that hardcore where they're like, threatening to, you know, release the name of Afghanistan in 72 hours or whatever. I, my counter to that is, well, you guys missed an opportunity, potentially cause a lot of backlash against the Afghanistan surge and against Obama. Because as damaging as the collateral murder video was, it was didn't happen on Obama's watch. That was during the Bush administration. So I don't think that it had, I, my personal thought is something that would have happened, a video that happened in 2009, like that would have had more of an impact on like the wars that were currently still in the spotlight. So just the, the little bit hypocritical, but again, like I'm for releasing more information. Like I don't dispute their reasoning for doing it. I mean, I completely side with that reason and, you know, just in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the nuances and the complexities of, well, you know, why is Glenn Greenwald deciding to, you know, to hide this country name or, or was it Snowden who actually told Greenwald that not to release it because of, of reason, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah. That's the thing is or, we don't know. We don't know. And that's part of the problem is it's like erase Glenn Greenwald, the intercept WikiLeaks from the equation. And you just only look at the documents he's released. I don't think you can dispute that they're real documents and that they show us new problems in a way that we didn't understand before. Right. Um, that to me is where the crux of the argument lies and I don't think that it's like there's not a very good counter argument to that and that's I think specifically what more people need to be focusing on and is it, the documents yeah yeah no I was just gonna say that the people who are the most vehement critics of Greenwald don't ever really talk about the documents they just kind of act like oh this is all old news and it's like yeah I well, understand just like the same critics of Julian Assange the same thing with the WikiLeaks documents but go, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. The same. Yeah. yeah. The same criticism. Like, this is nothing new. It's like, what are you insane? How is this nothing new? It just. I mean, we just outlined just a couple examples, but there's something new in all the documents. And the, the, the difference is that we have documents like it's not just conjecture. It's like everything can be backed up from internal documents. I just can't stress that enough. But there's another huge criticism of Greenwald um, in that. He works for Pierre Omidyar. And my whole thing with that is that I work for Russia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I mean, it's like, I, who am I to call anyone out for who they work for? Yeah. And that's, a, I mean, I that is a cartoonish oversimplification because it's like, it's right, like you no, don't work course. for. I was just mostly joking. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same as saying that Glenn Greenwald works for right. a PayPal billionaire. Right. He does technically, 
but seems like all of a sudden he woke up to being a privacy advocate. I don't know if we can take that at face value, but regardless, he's giving them an outlet to do it. That Glenn Greenwald feels is a bit, is a more, is a better outlet than the guardian was to do it or on his own. And also keep in mind that if Snowden wanted Glenn Greenwald to leak the documents or wanted these documents to leaked, he, I think he could easily still make that happen, even though Russia technically told him he can't, like they made some kind of agreement where he couldn't do anything more. I think that that's the thing we need to keep in mind, that if that was, was Snowden's wishes, you know, those documents would already be out. And I know I, I've already said that like multiple times. You have to keep going back to Snowden. Why is he not speaking out against the intercept? Right. Why is he not speaking out against the Pierre OMDR PayPal thing? He could easily make a statement about how he doesn't agree with like PayPal and yeah. how PayPal is working with the NSA and that he knows firsthand, but he hasn't. And then I think WikiLeaks called them out. And, I, and I'm not satisfied entirely with the way that Grand Greenwald addressed it initially. But at the same time, like that's not going to make me stop trusting the content of the documents right. or stop listening to some of the really valuable things that Glenn Greenwald still continues to say. I guess it's just not how I am. Like I even, you know, of all the criticism I've leveled towards Infowars, there are still some times where I pick up a kernel from them and I'm like, actually like, that's, that's like good information. Like I can verify that somewhere. I mean, it, that kind of thing still happens. So like, I mean, I don't spend any of my time on my show just completely tearing apart people in the broader movement that I subscribe to. Like the alternative media movement, there's a lot of people doing things that I don't agree with. Um, I try to just disagree with like how things are done instead of calling people out and consistently just trying to tear them down because it's just damaging. It's just like, this is divide and conquer 101. I don't understand why that should be a number one priority when it's the content of the documents and it's about banding together about the content of the documents to make the government change it. A lot of it's really new shit. A lot of it's really disturbing. And even without any of the context that Glenn Greenland has put it in, it's highly valuable information. And that, so and that brings me back to that website, Cryptom, one of the harshest critics of Glenn Greenwald, by far, on the internet. They leak everything. They're just like, we're going to leak like private email conversations from Jocelyn Raddick and, and First Look. And we're going to leak um, the, the job application for First Look. We're going to apply for a fake job and then we're going to leak the job application. So that's the kind of shit this guy's up to. I mean, even he is not saying the documents are fake. And this is not a plug for Glenn Greenwald's book at all. But on his book's website, you can actually go and download all of the documents that are in the book and that have been released in all these other stories for the last year um, at glengreenwald.net. And, and you don't have to purchase anything. You could just download all of the documents. Right. And cryptome.org did a really good job of comparing all the documents in his book to all the previously released documents and all these other outlets. And they sort of show you where they all come from and how that different media outlets would would sort of filter them in a certain way and they would not show like the whole document. They would like, so this guy actually did, has done some interesting work. Um, I mean, he seems definitely a little bit off his rocker, but like his, his, some of his shit's really good. I don't agree with like the, like fixation on Glenn Greenwald. Um, but at the same time, Glenn Greenwald has put himself out there. He is super ballsy. I mean, he's, he's going out there, he's making himself, in large part, sort of the face of this whole operation in the similar way that Julian Assange made himself the face of WikiLeaks. And by both accounts, 
they're out there to take the heat. And whether it comes from people who are suspicious of them of being insiders or hiding or government agents or people who think that they're traitors or whatever, it's like they've taken this role. And so it's completely fair and reasonable to criticize them extremely harshly for things that are like fair and fact-based. But to deduce that because he works for the guy who, one of the founders of PayPal, and that the PayPal wiki blockade thing happened, to assume that he is hiding documents that show connections between the NSA and PayPal, to assume that, because you're assuming that those documents even exist at all. We don't even know that they do. It, and it is kind of an enticing theory. It's kind of like, oh, well, yeah, like that makes sense. It's because like they have this many documents. They must have documents showing all the financial institutions, um, you know, working with the NSA. But we haven't seen like any Bank of America. Wasn't the Patriot Act that. already allowing people to like tap into bank records? And yeah, for sure. Let's just say even if that were true, even if, okay, like. And if it were true that Glenn Greenwald has made a trade-off between upsetting his whole, his boss or whatever and all that shit, and then he's decided to sit on a document that can like implicate his boss in working with the NSA, that still doesn't negate the content of the documents. Once again, <laughs> you know what I mean? So like worst case scenario, if that theory is true, which I don't believe it is, there's simply he's sitting on documents that will hurt one company out of like when we know all this other shit about all these other companies there's still immense value in the documents yeah but i think people's argument is that like it's not just paypal it's like all these ngos that pierre has his hands in and like destabilizing ukraine and stuff like what if he's sitting on documents that talks about all this stuff that's what people say because there's always going to be a funder that's questionable yeah and it's the and same that's thing the problem yeah it's the same thing with and, and let's just get this out there. It's the same thing with Russia and the Crimea coverage. And that's a more obvious example. Like that is a clear conflict of interest where, of course, Russia is not going to like echo the US, United States Western media point of view about right. something that they're deeply invested in. And that goes back to that whole reason why Glenn Greenwald wrote that story about you on The Intercept because he saw himself in a very similar position. I think he felt... A lot of heat coming to him because people were claiming that he didn't have independence right simply because of the potential for conflict of interest and as people saw with you when that potential actually realizes itself into a reality mm -hmm. you you call bullshit on it yeah essentially i don't think that we can say that there is a situation that has already arisen at first look that glenn greenwald has even had the opportunity to stand up for and be like, no, I'm going to, mm -hmm. that, that still is pure speculation to assume that that situation has already happened and he's already conceded. And I guess the yeah. counter argument to that would be that we don't know because he is controlling the narrative because he has the documents, but then you can yeah. go back and say, well, it's not just Laura, it's Poitras. Laura Poitras and it's Brett Gelman. Brett Gelman. So yeah. it's, and possibly more people. That's the thing is, it's not just Glenn Greenwald, but the thing is he's made himself the face of it, but there's other people that have documents that could be speaking out constantly and that could go rogue and release them if something did conflict with First Look and that they yeah. felt like was really bad. And I think uh, an interesting sort of diversion from this, it's, that's a pretty balanced, reasonable approach to all this that's still critical of, of some of the inner workings is that Sarah Harrison talk that you put mm -hmm. on Media Roots 
she was like sort of helped Snowden. Um, what, what did she do? She's an envoy from WikiLeaks, yeah, right? Yeah, she was sent to help him maintain refuge at the airport and then get him to a safe harbor in Moscow. Yeah. And she was getting all the asylums granted from Cuba, et cetera. And she, and she has, you know, some criticisms of the, the slowness of the, of the work by Glenn Greenwald and, and the various journalists that have done the reporting on the, on the Snowden documents. But at the same time, she's not negating the whole operation simply because of some criticisms. And again, like we have criticisms, but we, st- we are still supporting the ongoing effort that they're doing on a very general level. I mean, we will always look at the documents. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but again, like we kind of sided a little bit with WikiLeaks in this instance about the Afghanistan. Like why did they redact it? Like I don't, none of the reasons they've given me that I saw, I agree with, but I'm not gonna, it's not enough to take away everything else that I know about what Greenwald has done and what Snowden's done. And we're, and I think that we tend to be a little bit more radical than even Glenn Greenwald and Glenn Greenwald's probably even more radical in his politics than Edward Snowden. Glenn Greenwald is never in the military. Glenn Greenwald never worked for the national security state. Glenn Greenwald was mostly on the defense side of like several, you know, possibly hundreds of different litigations where we he was on We don't know defense. what Glenn Greenwald would do if Snowden didn't make the pact with him. We don't know how yeah. Glenn Glen, Greenwald would be releasing as he, he could be just like releasing tons of raw documents. But Snowden asked him specifically to provide context to the ones that he releases by writing these lengthy articles and cross-referencing them. That takes fucking time. Or people are upset that he ha- that their documents aren't just dumped, then go to Snowden. Tell him. Yeah. I mean... He could have done that. And that's, that's another part people are missing. They, it's, it's because Glenn, Glenn Greenwald has made himself the face of this. And that's somewhat the risk you take. It's like, because you're out there putting your face out there, you're going to con- continually be taking flack for like the whole team effort. But I think the speed thing, I mean, maybe Snowden did want them to be faster, but yeah, he's not saying anything. Yeah, and I think if he if he really had a problem with it, as much as the problems that WikiLeaks are, are voicing, he would have said something already. I think. I mean, it's already been a year. He could have said something this whole time if he had a problem with it. Yeah. You know, when he goes across the mainstream media to talk about this shit, it's mostly like ninety percent of the time adversarial interviews. The only people that give him a fair shake on the mainstream media is like maybe Jake Tapper and Anderson Cooper seems to be Mm -hmm. like a fan of his. Like that's the exception. Um, Even on MSNBC, the most supposedly the most liberal host on MSNBC fucking put him through this like really weird passive aggressive Chris Hayes chokehold. The whole premise of the interview is like, why do people on the, on, that are like Democrats and liberals hate you so much? And why do you make people choose between you and Obama? Because most people are, will choose Obama. I just don't buy into this idea that he's even a sacred cow. I feel like most of the people who are on the fringe left, the really fringe left buy into this idea that he's like damaged goods and yeah, I mean, like too many people, I'm not saying most of them, but like a lot of the people that I see, there's a lot of cynicism around it. So I don't, I don't see, I just don't buy into the idea that there's some kind of sacred cow. Right. There are reasons why we're very behind it. We In don't, fact, I got the, I experienced the brunt of his, of his trolling by extension after he wrote the article about me. Oh yeah. I experienced like a week long hate train of all these anti Glenn Greenwald people who just hijacked 
that article and wanted to take me down to embarrass him. And I was just thinking, this is what I experienced in one week. It is completely insane. And he's like just getting this constantly from all sides. Like, I just don't understand how he's a sacred cow because he has like a loyal fan base that is covering the documents and reading the documents still and supporting attention. the documents. I can understand on one hand criticizing someone like I'm, like I do this a lot because I'm a musician and I'm, I see like people getting a lot of hype uh, who are sort of like new onto the scene and they have like a PR apparatus behind them, like a marketing machine. And you can tell that it's not are being organically generated. It's a PR hype. And when the Snowden thing first broke, I think a lot of people sort of saw the coverage that Glenn Greenwald was getting and thought to themselves or, or expressed the feeling that this was somehow some kind of PR hype. Sometimes the mainstream media has to address shit when they can't ignore it. I mean, look at the Abu Ghraib photos. Was that PR hype? Were they addressing that because like someone with like a marketing budget, like hype that up and wanted them to talk about it. No, like they had to talk about it because it was so fucking shocking. They knew everybody else would be talking about it because it was like a, you know, devastating information. But I see this as a similar thing. It's, it's not that it's suspicious how much, you know, mainstream media coverage Glenn Greenwald was getting. It's almost like they want to just cover it and then push it to the side, like to sort of go through the minutia, the motions of like, we talked about this because I think that it really exploits a vulnerability in them if they continue to talk about it for too long. Yeah. Especially when they have Glenn Greenwald there in person or like talking, you get him talking for long enough and he's just going to like destroy their whole paradigm that they're trying to set up. Mm. They'll continue to talk about the documents and that's a similar thing. They're not going to ignore those because other media organizations are going to be talking about those as they come out. That's the nature of the mainstream media. That's another side of it that I don't understand that people sort of resent how much coverage he's getting. I mean, Julian Assange got a shitload of coverage too. And he still does. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just know how I felt when, <laughs> I just know how I felt when I saw all these people jumping down my throat and being criticized from all sides just because I said a pro-peace statement. That's essentially what it was. I was just like calling out all media bias and calling for peace and like to yeah, get. Yeah, but Abby, you used, you used the term Russian military intervention, which is technically incorrect because <laughs> there was this treaty in place where they were allowed to, you know, of any threat of the, um, of their sovereignty. I mean, it's just, it's just it's crap. It's like you weren't. I don't know, man. You can't win. No, no. People say you're a Russian propagandist because you work for Russia today. <laughs> and then when you speak against the Russian government, when you disagree with something that you are fully conscious of, although you were admitting that you didn't have a ton of knowledge about it, you were knowledgeable enough. We just had a fucking, we did a two hour podcast on Ukraine. Right. And when you listen to it now, we had a ton of foresight. We were like pretty tapped into what was going on before you did that statement. People going around saying that you were, you know, speaking out of school or, or, or Abby, I, I hope you, you read about the Ukraine now. You've read about it now, right? And you understand what's going on. We fucking pretty much knew what was going on. Right. We just, we just don't jump into these like one side or the other thing as easily as some other people seem to do. Like right. we were, we were taking like a pretty moderate approach to it, but while looking at all these other facts, like the Victoria Newland thing, the, the USAID thing, like we were looking at all these things, right? but we didn't, 
I don't yeah, it's know. just it's just like almost every global conflict. It's like either you're pro Assad or anti Assad. It's like why can't you be anti Assad and also anti U.S. government bombing? No, just remembering back to this is just totally out of the out of left field, but there was like a human element. I remember to when we were ramping up for the Syrian war that I don't think got as much media coverage as it deserved, but Assad was actually interviewed by Charlie Rose. Yeah, that was crazy. Like during like the the peak of that tension where it seemed like we were really going to go in and invade. It was just really shocking actually. Cause yeah. you, when you see these like supposed despots and dictators from the sort of Western media lens, usually it's really easy to paint them into a box cause they don't speak English first of all. And a lot of them seem kind of like unhinged. A lot of them like may their body language is very gregarious or whatever, but like this guy was just like super calm and, Really, he he always had like a little lisp and stuff. He's kind of kind of like a effeminate quality to him. It was just it was just really interesting thinking back on it. Like I almost want to watch that again. <laughs> really weird. I'm just thinking if Saddam Hussein had a similar personality and he spoke decent English, like what it would have been different about that. Well, I remember watching Ahmadinejad be interviewed, and it was like really just really surreal because he was just like really on point about a lot of shit. <laughs> But then he would like go completely <laughs> off the rails and start talking about like the Holocaust is like unproven and it's like, oh no. But it's just like so no weird how you can mind. have this caricature of someone in your mind and then you realize that, oh, they're actually like really intelligent and you see why they've been able to become who they are, you know? Yeah. Or even, even someone like, I mean, yeah, Putin is, is done with some weird shit in public. I mean, he's taking those shirtless photos. He's like done like weird karaoke th- jams and stuff. But like when he talks sort of like candidly or off the cuff like i mean it's just not the portrait that we paint uh, on him from the west i mean honestly he just seems much more intelligent more plugged in than our presidents do and to some degree mm-hmm. and i don't know if i'm just like watching the right videos or whatever you're watching rt clearly. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm i love Putin. i just want to suck his <laughs> cock off but uh <laughs> obama i just don't even think obama has like the same I, I don't know. It's just, it's hard yeah, to explain Yeah, it's a more dumbed down rhetoric we, here. It's like, I mean, I know that R- Russia has a uh, really strong nationalism and it's like really religious right now, but it just seems like Obama still talks about things in a childlike way, kind of like Michael Hayden does, but in a more like intelligent seeming way, but it's still the same dumb way of looking at the world with like American exceptionalism. Well, so in that dangerous. sense, all these other leaders like make a lot of sense when they're calling out that. And you're like, yeah, you clearly get what's going on. And you just will never hear people breaking through even that here. Yeah. Well, we're the same country that is the potent mixture between being like infants. We're brand new in terms of like the history right. of the planet. And the fact that we mixed it with this potent mixture of uh, evangelical you know, fundamentalist Christianity and we were burning people we suspected as of being witches back when we were like settling in this country. And Obama is still speaking to the American public on that condescending level that like almost taps into that, that era of like Amer- the American mind, childlike, paranoid, sad, and coddled that we need to be. It's almost like that's the way that politicians get votes now like the polling data the data mining probably shows that if you talk to the american public like small children and just <laughs> lie to them constantly it seems to get did votes you, there's this new pew poll 
but I'm really tired right now. But there was this new Pew poll that showed that the most important presidential attribute is religion. Like polled people just want a president to be Christian. I remember you covered that on your show, yeah. right? Yeah. There was, what was it? The atheist one was like at 13% or something. It was something? the least favorite one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. an atheist. And then there was like going to an Ivy League school. Wait, did they, did they put Muslim in there too? No. That probably would have been the least favorite. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. It was really unfortunate. <laughs> also being gay was like really favored less too. It's just like, wow, this is where we're at. Okay. That's what's important. Gotcha. Not policies or experience or anything like that. Just if you're religious, if you were like a business owner, that shows you a lot. What, what, what business owner? It was like someone running for president. Oh, it was uh, Herman Cain. Oh, it was oh, like he God. ran a pizza chain. Like he <laughs> qualified. Knew, yeah, he, he was like a business owner. He knew what to do. I remember I went to a Mitt Romney fundraiser and all these old ladies who are super fucking rich. I was interviewing them and I was like, so why do you like Mitt Romney? And they're like, well, he knows that I run a business really well. So like, of course he can run this country really well. I was like, so you just see America as just a giant business. It's just so strange. Such a strange trajectory. He's successful at money. Therefore he can run an entire fucking country. And Ronald Reagan wasn't even that. I mean, he wasn't like a good actor necessarily either. No, he was a horrible was actor. All like- he was, was he was super anti-communist. So the government like plucked him up out of the Screen Actors Guild and wanted him to just, he was like really good at galvanizing anti-communist rhetoric. He was a horrible actor. He didn't have any political experience. How did we get to this point? Like, this is just <laughs> really surreal. We had like an actor for president of Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor. We tortured people and everybody who was in on that program got away with it. And now there's a massive NSA spying grid on the planet that can record everyone's phone calls and store them and corporations are mining all of our data and just using them to like exploit us in every way that they possibly can yeah if you thought the mediocrity of culture wasn't bad enough it's just going to get worse because they're just going to data mine the shit out of us and try to like figure out exactly what we want to the point where they'll just like <laughs> it's just like I don't know. It's it's just terrible. already so annoying. Even in taxis, like I know that you can at least turn the sound off, but how it's just like you just get commercials everywhere you go, like metro, taxis, bus stops. There's even like a little commercial that plays on the bus stop screen now when I'm sitting at the bus. It's just like insane. Not that that has anything to do with like algorithmic data mining i'm just saying it's just insane how you can't even get away from like commercials when you're just walking around yeah i mean in an ideal world the corporations would want it to be like the minority report advertising thing where you're like walking by it scans your retina and knows who you are and just like ads like talk to you and personalize it for you that's what so they want philip k dick like fucking nailed it I mean, everyone says, uh, you know, George Orwell was right. Well, take Philip it one K. step Dick, further. Philip yeah. K. Dick was right. Way, I mean, he was like, he was way too conservative, but he was totally right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Throw on our um, scramble suits, <laughs> get crazy, get wild. All right. Well, thanks for listening to our long nuanced conversation about the NSA um, donate to mediaroots.org check out the SoundCloud timeline you can download the audio broadcast and you can also check out some links that we post 
um, to just get some reference of what we're talking about here. And also check out Breaking the Set, my brother Fluorescent Gray. Follow me on Twitter. My brother needs new followers. I closed my account because I <laughs> harassed with Liz Wall too much. <laughs> and then I got scared and closed it. True story. Yeah, true story. <laughs> true story. Trolling. <laughs> yeah, so so help my brother out. Help his brother out. <laughs> Bye. See